the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Welcome to a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life, um, church questions. You had a good day in church yesterday, I hope and pray. And uh, all you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-380-9585. That's 340. I said 380 a minute ago. That's Paula's phone number. 340-9585. And if you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free and you'll be safe. So we'd love to hear from you. A quick program note tonight. Uh, We have here at Calvary Chapel our men's and women's and youth Bible studies, you can make it a family affair. Everybody can come at the same time. Uh, Dr. Sheba Paley will be teaching the ladies, and of course, Pastor Ken. And by the way, it's Pastor Ken's birthday. I want to thank him for filling in for me last week. But today is his birthday, and um, he'll be teaching tonight the men. And of course, we have our high school and junior high school studies going on at the same time. Hope you had a great day in church. We really did yesterday. We finished a book. We finished uh, 13 months and I'm told 45 studies, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. And on this coming Sunday, I'm going to be starting in the Gospel of Mark and I'm really looking forward to that. Well, let's get to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. We'd love to have them. Uh, the first one is from our email inbox, and it is anonymous. As a born-again born believer in Christ, I'm keenly aware. I'm consistently asking and praying to be filled with uh, embrace and experience God's supernatural agape love working in my life. Interestingly, recently I've realized that I do not ask, pray for, or wish to be disciplined by God. I find I'm afraid of it. In Proverbs 13, 24, it says, to paraphrase, he who loves his son disciplines him. And then here's the question. Does a believer walk with Jesus? Does a believer's walk with Jesus include being disciplined? Is there a reason we should want it and or be praying for it? Uh, I I love the heart behind your question. But here's the thing. Uh, Discipline is like patience. Neither is something you have to pray for. We need both. But neither is something that you have to pray for. Um, God will discipline you when you need it. Now, obviously, the way to avoid God's discipline is to just be with Jesus. Hang out with him. Talk to him. uh, Be in the middle of his will. Don't do what you know you're not supposed to do. And God disciplines us only when we need it. 
And usually that discipline is to get us back in line with his will. And it usually occurs after we've strayed away or we're starting to stray away. And maybe we're not listening to the spirit of God sort of trying to correct us. So discipline is a good thing. And God is faithful to discipline us when we need it. But again, this isn't something that we need to pray for or ask for. It's just something that that we should try to avoid as much as possible. And again, the way we do that is by being with Jesus. A couple of things about discipline. We always think the bad thing. You know, well, my dad used to discipline me and he would spank me with a belt or restrict me or take away some privileges. Um, discipline biblically, the word it would better actually be used training. God is training us. And our life requires discipline and that's the constant process, um, anonymous, that we are always walking. We, we, we need to be trained. We need to train our mind. We need to train our flesh. We need to, 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 to train our routines so that what we do then is instinctively that which we know God wants us to do. At the beginning of your question, when you said you're always asking uh, to be filled with and embrace and experience God's supernatural agape love working in my life, if you keep your heart in that place, there will be very little discipline in your life. And God, while you're walking with him in his love, and while that love is working through you, um, you will be being trained in the process. And here's sort of the best part about God's training us. Uh, we find that our life gets richer and fuller when we're walking with Jesus. And then it becomes something not that we have to do, but something that we want to do. So again, let me summarize by saying, you don't need to ask God for discipline. You don't need to ask him for patience. He's going to work both of those things in you. And you just keep worrying about um, being filled every day with his presence, with his uh, agape love working in and through your life. Romans 5 5 says that God has already poured out his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit that he's given us. So all you need to do is have enough faith to call on that love that's already poured out into your heart every single day. And if you do that, you will avoid a whole lot of discipline in your life. He disciplines us because he loves us. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's another question from our email inbox. This one is from Dave. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, informs Nehemiah that he's seen the walls of Jerusalem broken down and the gates burned with fire. Again, in chapter 2, verse 17, we see that Nehemiah himself has seen Jerusalem lying in waste, and he says again, its gates are burned with fire. I was wondering if there's any significance or special meaning associated with these verses referring to the gates themselves. Um, Dave, God used Hanani to, to plant a burden. God, of course, knew that he was going to use Nehemiah to, to rebuild the walls uh, of Jerusalem. This is, of course, post-exile. Uh, the exiles have returned, and, uh, of course, they're going to rebuild the temple, and they're going to live there and establish Jewish communal life again. Um, but the problem uh, when Hanani comes back and reports, and this is simply God making sure that Nehemiah receives the message. Um, our, our walls, walls in the ancient world were the only defense they had. And our walls are torn down. They've been burned with fire. They've been completely destroyed. And um, at that moment, God put a burden in Nehemiah's heart to do something about it. Now, when he goes to Jerusalem, he finds out that it's worse than he thought. That's why he went all by himself. He told no one what he was going to do. He just wanted to go check out for himself what the condition of the walls is. He wanted to sort of take inventory of the amount of work that needed to be done. And when he saw them, it was so bad he had to get off his horse. He had to kind of walk on his own feet, kind of climb through the rubble. And his discovery was that things are worse, much worse than he ever could have imagined. I imagine if he's like us, and sure he was, he would look and say, well, where am I even going to start? What's the point? How am I going to do all of this? But then he would remember a couple of things. He re would remember the favor that God gave him. The favor, first of all, of, of having that burden in his heart. 
then the favor of approaching the king. Actually, the king approached him. What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? This can only be sadness of heart. And Nehemiah said, well, I'm sad because my walls are destroyed and there's nothing I can do about it and I feel like I need to do something. And, and of course, the king let him go and gave him everything that he needed. And it was at that moment he had to remember that as bad as things are, God has already paved the way for me to be here. And I think that's really the only significance, no matter how bad the problems are that we're facing in our life. If God's put a burden on your heart, then that's what he'll do. Can I talk for a moment, Dave, about about burdens? Uh, I think all of us as believers, we need to be more sensitive to the burdens that God is placing on our heart. I'll just give you one personal example. Um, um, Twelve years before we opened uh, Malta Medical here at Calvary Chapel, and Malta Medical, for those of you who don't know, is a free family practice doctor's office that is 100% supported by the church. Nobody ever pays a dime. We don't get insurance. We have a full staff of doctors and nurses uh, who are working there. It's an amazing ministry. People get saved all the time down there, and 90% of the people that are coming to Malta Medical have nothing to do with their church. They come from outside the church. Every one of them gets prayed for. Every one of them uh, gets Jesus shared with them. And obviously God has prepared their hearts, many of them, to receive Christ. Now the reason I brought that up is because 12 years before the doors opened, God put that burden on my heart. And it was as simple as one day I was figuring out something I needed to go to a doctor. I'm pretty busy. I don't mean I'm important, but I'm pretty busy. And the doctor was going to make me a referral. And when I tried for the referral, uh, there was, what's your insurance? And, and it was going to take a long time. I didn't have that kind of time. And I just thought, Lord, we there's got to be something that we can do about this. I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. And I didn't know how to go to a doctor anymore. And the Lord put this burden on my heart for what is eventually going to be called Malta Medical. Twelve years. I think we all need to pay attention to the burdens that God puts on our heart. And Nehemiah, this burden that God gave him was simply God protecting his people, Israel. Again, in the ancient world, Dave, uh, without walls, enemies could just march right in the city and overtake it. And, and they needed protection. And it wasn't until those walls were reconstructed that the people could carry on the work that God had called them to with any sort of confidence at all. Thank you for the question, Dave, but, but um, that's the only significance of, of uh, the, the walls and the gates burned with fire. It's just a matter of things are really, really bad, but God is bigger than all of that. Here is a question from Marshall from our email inbox, and this is a pastor's conference-related question. Pastor Ron, does your church have a problem with young people getting serious about ministry? If so, what do you do about it? At my church, I'm noticing a lot of young people now serving or, or I'm sorry, not serving or not taking the message seriously. What can we do to encourage our younger generation to serve Christ? Marshall, this is one of the most important questions that any pastor has to deal with. Uh, we have no problem at all um, with young people getting serious about doing the work of God. In fact, we encourage everything we have. We have a, a ministry uh, where our, our kids actually serve. I'm talking young kids. They actually serve alongside their parents. Uh, and, and in other ministries they get involved, they're serving with other kids under adult supervision. Uh, when we partake of communion, we have kids who are helping adults pass out the uh, the elements. And to see young people serving is just an absolutely thrilling experience. And so, yeah, we, we want them to get serious about serving, and we accommodate that every opportunity that we have. Marshall, the other thing that, that we, we really want kids to understand is that um, it's expected Serving is expected in the Christian life, and so we want them exposed to it right away. Your question, what can we do to encourage our younger generation to serve Christ as older people? Um, we can set an example. 
we can set an example for the marshal by our own service. And, and in every home, every Christian home, moms and dads and their kids ought to find a way to be serving one another. It, it's just contagious, and, and, and it, will, it will bleed over into our home life. And we want to teach our kids to be servants. And I just think that is something that is underutilized in the church today. So I think that's really, really important to encourage them and then give them opportunities. We have, I think, at last count, almost 100 ministries uh, in the church, and people can do all kinds of things. And so when people are sitting around, we'll, we'll just say, hey, so what are you doing? Let's serve God together. Uh, Marshall, I do a pastor's discipleship class every other Saturday uh, from 1030 to 1230. And a lot of the people in that class are young people. And it is a class that uh, emphasizes the seriousness of our commitment to serving the Lord. So um, if in your church young people are not serving uh, or they're not taking the message seriously, then what you can do is set an example for them. At the same time, be an encourager, an exhorter. Final thought on this, Marshall. I think one thing that is missing from most pulpits is exhortation. Uh, lots of good Bible teachers out there. There's a, a lot of really gifted communicators out there. Uh, but remember, what we're doing is not a show. And so what we need to do is apply the message every week to the people in the, in the audience so that they can take something home with them and use that to change their lives or to be a minister to others. I'll give you just one example. My message yesterday, Marshall, began uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, um, talking about how much we need each other in the church. And I asked everybody in the audience, I said, as we begin today, let's imagine in your mind there's a big circle and you're on the outside of that circle and everybody else is inside that circle and this inside of that circle is your ministry. And so the, the whole point is to exhort people to get involved, to serve their church, to serve the people in that body. And when they do that, then they really begin to understand what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And that's when life gets full and rich. It's when the Holy Spirit falls. It's when God's gifts are given uh, in abundance to people. So serving matters a great deal. Unfortunately, Marshall, in much of our church culture, we've made church a spectator sport. That's not what happens here at Calvary Chapel. And I am constantly exhorting people to get involved in service. We've been so blessed here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Marshall, because we have always, from the very beginning, we've always had more people serving than we need. Now, we've never had money, and we'd like some money too, but we've always had more people serving than we needed. And uh, boy, when other pastors come here, when they talk about what they see going on at our church, well, how do you do it? How do you get people so invested and involved? And I, I just say, look, I do nothing. I teach the Bible. The Holy Spirit does the work. And I exhort them to get involved. And then we provide opportunities for them. So really important question, Marshall. Thank you very, very much. It's a new week. We'd love your phone calls and questions. 340-9585. Here is our next question. Uh, it comes from... Oh, we got a phone call. Let me go there first. Don't like to keep you away. Got Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor. I'm feeling better. I was going to say better than James Brown, but I should say I feel better than Sam Bob. <laughs> <laughs> You 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 brought me back to my into nostalgia. I feel good, James Brown said. I feel good. That's right. Yeah. Man, what a beautiful What's service up? yesterday! And I wanted oh, to thank ask you. you to uh, elaborate on on Chuck one seven. <laughs> I can do that, Jeff. Thank you. Okay, love you. Bye. Thank thanks. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday. Our founding pastor, Chuck Smith. Uh, he say, he said this to pastors. Uh, I, I've been for 26 and a half years a pastor here. And, and at our pastor's conference, uh, year after year after year, Chuck would say the same thing. He would say, blessed are the flexible, for they will not break. And um, he said it so often that we pastors gave it a, a chapter and verse. We call it Chuck 1-7. 
Um, and it's a wonderful um, philosophy of life. Be flexible. Don't be set in your ways. Uh, as I applied it in the message yesterday, uh, it's important that we uh, allow Jesus to interrupt our routines. You know, we all make plans, but but the Bible says a man devises the plans in his heart, but the Lord orders his steps. And there's too many of us who won't let God order or redirect our steps. And remember, God is giving us gifts. Uh, God has poured out his spirit into our hearts. He has a plan for each and every single one of us. And I think when we become inflexible, we get up in the morning and we just start going through our routine. Uh, If we're not among those people that get up and say, okay, Lord, what about me and what about today? Then we're going to miss out on a whole bunch of stuff. And so you got to be flexible. And I asked the church yesterday, and I'll ask you in the audience today, is God able to interrupt your plans? Now, generally, you're going to get up, you're going to go to work, you're going to come home, you're going to take care of your families. All those things are normal. But but are you getting up and saying, okay, Lord, I'm looking for divine appointments today. I want to be able to share the love of God with someone. Lord, if, if you have somebody who needs to be encouraged or edified, I'm your man or I'm your woman. Are you saying, okay, Lord, this is what my plan is, but... Your plan is what matters. Now, God's not going to tell you to take the day off. He's not going to tell you to chill out. But he will bring along the routine that you've already established. He will bring opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to you. And that's when life gets really, really exciting. So we need to be flexible enough. This is especially true, Jeff, of pastors. You know, a lot of us as pastors, we just do what... Everybody else does. We tried to do a little better. We want a few more people. Instead, we need to say, okay, Lord, this church is yours. I'm the underservant here. So if this church is yours, what is your plan for your church? And then all we do is implement those orders. And again, at the risk of, of, of personalizing this, um, that's how we got a free school. Nobody would ever think of that. I certainly wouldn't have thought of that. That's how we got a free doctor's office. It's how we came up with a house for women who are having difficult times in their lives. It's it's what we do. By the way, that's how we got on the radio a long time ago. I, I never expected that I would be on the radio. Uh, I wanted other Calvary Chapel pastors on the radio, but God had other plans. And boy, we've been on radio now in, in San Antonio and all over the rest of the, the, the country now for, I don't know, 23 of our 26 years, and this program was just an afterthought. I I never set out to do anything like this. Um, But, you know, you've got to be flexible. I'll never forget the day um, Mike Payne, who was the general manager of KSLR at the time, uh, he called me while Paul and I were on vacation. And um, I I had a teaching program on KSLR, and I still do. uh, and, and he said, you know, I'm thinking about a, a local programming question, a, sort of a Bible question program. Would you be interested in doing something like that? And I thought, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll pray about it. But when, when Paul and I, we knew that a daily program would, would radically change our lives. It's a significant commitment. And um, we wanted to be sure. And when we really sought the Lord on it, Paula looked at me and she said, you know, Ron, you were born to do this. The Lord's saying, yeah, let's do this. And I felt like the Lord had said the same thing to me. So we were in it together. And that was now more than nine years ago. And, um, um, you know, again, it's just something I wouldn't have done. But when we are flexible, God is going to open some doors that are pretty exciting doors. And that's the whole point of being flexible. Jeff, thank you for, for asking the question. Here is an anonymous question, again from email. Hi, Pastor Ron. Are Jewish people going to hell since they don't believe in Jesus as their Savior? I've heard pastors preach that Jewish people will be preserved through the Great Tribulation since they're considered the holy people. This kind of teaching makes me believe that the Jewish people can live how they want because they will be preserved. Ben Shapiro, first time we've ever been asked about Ben Shapiro, is a known Jew who talks on radio and TV. He's been said 
Uh, he, he thinks he's going to heaven because he's considered holy because of his religion and he doesn't have to believe in Jesus as their savior. What can we make of all of this? Well, Jews are, are blinded uh, by sin. They're blinded uh, from the things of God. And Ben Shapiro is certainly one of those people. He's, he's a, a very conservative man. He is absolutely brilliant, by the way. His intellect is off the charts. Um, but you're right. He has, He's just not interested at all. John MacArthur was on his program and, and absolutely preached the gospel to him, and he just, don't need it, don't need it. Um, but Jews need Jesus to go to heaven, uh, period. There's no other way to heaven, being religious, being Jewish. Jesus said this to Nicodemus. So they need Jesus, and if they refuse Jesus Christ, then they're going to spend eternity in hell. Um, uh, sadly, there are pastors who preach that Jewish people are under a different covenant, um, but that's simply not true. It's contrary to what the Bible says. Uh, and apart from Jesus, um, anonymous, they are going to spend eternity forever, including Ben Shapiro. Stick to your guns. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We have 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome, welcome back to the second half of our program. We've been getting bombarded with questions uh, on our app and, and via email. Remember, um, the, the program's a lot more interesting if you call. But um, we'll take your questions. The first one for this half of the program is from uh, Dewey. He says, I have a question to ask. Why is the tribe of Dan not listed in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8? This really puzzles me because in Genesis, it was listed as one of the impelling forces of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why do you think this original impetus for Israel is gone? Um, do a couple of things. Um, the, the Bible doesn't say why they're not listed. Um, I've got an idea, and I'll share that with you, but um, the Bible's quiet. We had a question in the first half of the program about discipline, and I think this is one of the consequences of not letting God discipline. First of all, the tribe of Dan was fierce, they were fighters, but they were also the very first tribe in the northern kingdom to be completely given over to idolatry. I mean, gross, gross religious practices completely given over, and they were influential in leading other tribes. And it is thought by most commentators that that's the reason they're not listed in Revelation chapter 7. Um Manasseh and Ephraim are listed as as uh, two tribes uh, when when they're of course from Joseph, but that's the best reason that we can come up with. Um, there there's some people say things like, well, you know, the 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 Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan. Uh, that's a a reach, a stretch. But do we? The, the answer is something that we're going to find out in heaven to, to for sure. But most likely, it's because they forfeited their place in the millennium um, because of their gross, idolatrous behavior, even though they knew better. Um, Dan didn't like the land they were given. They went to other, They were just generally a troublesome tribe of people. And so that's the best we can do. But there's simply no way to know for sure. Thank you. Do I appreciate the question? Here is another anonymous question. Uh, I've been told that Jesus spent the three days after crucifixion in hell, but I know he told the thief on the cross that they would be in heaven that same day. Could you please put the subject to rest? Thank you, Pastor Ron. I'll put down my stylus and listen. I don't know what a stylus is. Uh, my producer is saying he wrote this on his iPad. Okay, stylus. I've got an iPad. I, I didn't know I had a stylus. 
Now I've got one. Uh, Anonymous, thank you for the question. Um, we don't, we have no detail. Now, we do know that he went into the abyss, the lower parts of the earth, and, and led the captives, set the captives free. He proclaimed victory, Peter says in his epistle, uh, that, that he proclaimed victory. He, he didn't go down to preach the gospel. He wasn't giving those in torment a second chance. But he was proclaiming victory, and he would have led the captives captive. And by captives, those, Luke chapter 16, who are in the place that we call paradise. He, he set them free, and he led them to heaven. Um, but, but Jesus, during those three days, um, was doing the unspeakable. We know he was in paradise. Um, we know that because he did tell the thief on the cross. Uh, but he didn't, and again, I don't know your church background, Anonymous, but he wasn't in hell suffering. He wasn't in hell waiting to be the first born-again believer at all. He was simply um, um, doing the work that his father told him to do. So that's what he was doing, and we're simply not given the specifics, and that has to be okay with us. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Let's go to our friend Ruben in Seguin. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. God bless you. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, Reuben. Thank you. My voice is a little tired, but it always is on Monday, but I'm doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I sometimes follow the services that y'all do. I, uh, you do three of them, don't you, on Sundays? I do. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. And, and I, I'm, that's, that's I'm not one of those blessed guys that has a, a strong voice. So uh, the harder I try to be heard, the, the, the harder it is to hear me. So I just have to talk in a normal yeah. voice. But that's a lot. So, But we're doing good, yeah, Ruben. Thank yeah. you. That's good. That's good. Pastor, I was wondering, sir, if you can please um, clear up the meaning of when, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying, and um, I think it was a second time after he went down to Peter and them, and then he, you know, he, I'm assuming he got upset because they were sleeping, and then he went back up to the to the garden, and then when he said, "Father, if," and this isn't verbatim, but "Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass me by." Now, mm-hmm. what is the significance? of what he said. I mean, I've heard so many people say so many things. I'm like, well, I don't, I still don't know. I I would like to know what is the significance of, of that part of the prayer that he prayed. Yeah. Great question, Ruben. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be going into the gospel of Mark, because I get to talk about those things. A couple of things. The cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath. Imagine Jesus facing the wrath of his father. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The father made that pronouncement three times, and yet Jesus was going to drink that cup of wrath. You'll also remember that when James and John sent their mother to Jesus saying, uh, could, could my sons have the seat on your right and on your left? And Jesus asked the question to, to uh, John and James, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink from? He was talking about the cup of God's wrath. Uh, So that's what he was saying. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, this was Jesus' humanity coming out. He was simply praying, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me. And, And on three occasions, the Father's response was, there is no other way. And so Jesus would say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. Meaning he was completely submitted to his Father in this cup of wrath that he would suffer. So that's what he was talking about. And the cup of wrath of, of, of just just the, the judgment that he was going to take for us. Isaiah chapter 50, uh, chapter 53, 54, talks about um, the wrath of God. Jesus taking the punishment for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. And Jesus was simply saying, if there's another way. One of the things, Reuben, that we need to remember always is that, that uh, you know, we, we humans have a tendency to say, well, well, if somebody's a good person, they're sincere, then, then all roads lead to heaven. No, Jesus, if all roads led to heaven, if sincerity was the measure or being good was the measure, then the Father wouldn't have had to pour out his wrath upon his son. But that's exactly what he did. 
So that's what he meant. One other comment you made, Reuben, that I think is important. Jesus wasn't upset with Peter, James, and John because they kept falling asleep. He was disappointed for them. He was telling them that they need to be uh, um, on guard. They need to be praying. Not not for Jesus. Jesus wasn't asking for prayer for himself. He was telling them, you need now more than ever. I'm going to leave you. You need now more than ever to be in communication with our Father in heaven. And um, they fell asleep one, three times. The air was heavy. The grief that they were suffering is emotional. Imagine what it was like to hear Jesus in agony, crying out to his Father, sweating great drops of blood. And, and they would have been exposed that sometimes the easiest way that we can be uh, relieved is, is simply to go to sleep. And that's exactly what happened. Good questions, Ruben. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Von Army, Von Army, Texas, and talk with Scott online too. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Hi, Scott. Good. You can hear me. I'm driving, so I didn't know how that well that worked. Uh, I got kind of a peculiar question. Um, I believe it was uh, John Corson that I, I heard this from in one of his preachings. But I haven't been able to, to find it anywhere else, and I don't know how I would prove or disprove it. But what, what it is I'm looking for is, he said that uh, um, there's a, approximately with the promised land that was promised originally to Abram, the land would, was about uh, 300,000 square miles. But mm-hmm. the most that they've actually ever had uh, in their control or, or that they ruled over would have been during Solomon's time, and he said that was about 30,000 square miles. And then he, he associated that with a tenth or a tithe of the land that they actually had. But I, I, I don't know if those numbers are correct or where I could find anything to back that up if it's true. Yeah, Scott, um, it, it's, it's a little complicated to explain, but the best way for you to figure it out is, is Google, use Google Maps and Google uh, the land promised to Abraham. And, and it will give you the highlights, the outline of, of the Abrahamic covenant. And then you can also Google in the land that, that Israel occupied. Now, I don't, I don't think it's 30%. Uh, it has nothing to do with the tithe. Now, let me say this. John Corson's a friend. And I love John Corson. Uh, he is, um, to the best of my knowledge, one of the godliest men I've ever been around. Uh, but he gets a little goofy. And he draws connections sometimes uh, in things that maybe aren't really there. And, and he does it with the right heart, and he's, he does his best to study. But uh, I don't, it doesn't have anything to do with a tithe. It's simply that Israel did not have the faith to conquer all of the land that was given. Joshua could have gone in, and he could have taken everything, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is twofold. One, they were afraid of the enemies there and didn't have the faith to say, okay, even after Jericho and after all the other victories, after seven years of campaign, they got tired of war. Anybody living in our culture understands what that's like. You see war, you see death and destruction, and they just got tired of it. And they became content settling for less than God's fullness. And that's always a dangerous place to be. Uh, Scott, I actually had um, um, not too long ago those maps that I was telling you about. I don't know where I could lay my hands on them right now, but it's pretty easy to see the difference. And uh, the land that was promised to David, uh, the land that Solomon occupied was just a small portion of the land that God would have given them had they continued to to take all of the land that, that was promised to them. Good question, Scott. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. Here is a question from Robbie from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor. On this Sunday, my pastor was talking about generational curses and was using the book of Kings. Some of the sons who took over had the same curses and some did not. He made sense of it, but it did not sit right with me. Are there generational curses? And if not, why do pastors preach it? Robbie, you are in, no doubt, um, 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 an overly charismatic uh, church, perhaps even um, a a faith and prosperity church. And I use the word faith um, hesitatingly because um, uh, it's really not real biblical faith. 
Um, and and um, um, the reason people preach generational curses is because it sells. Uh, you know, if if you believe that that um, you're not responsible for your sin, it's it's something that your parents did or your grandparents or their parents did. Um, then, well, it's not my fault, and we can sort of rationalize doing the things that we're doing. So there are no such things as generational curses. Period. Now. In the book of Kings and Chronicles, in fact, read the book of Chronicles. Read the companion passages that your pastor was talking about. And God gives you a different perspective on the on the behavior of the kings. Um, the only generational curse that was passed was evil and rebelling against God. But that wasn't a, a, a curse as much as it was a choice that they made. They, they, they were taught by their father's examples to be evil kings, and they were. Right, if you take a, just want to do a thumbnail sketch of all of the kings, northern and southern kingdoms, you're going to find that 80% of them were bad kings. So is that a curse? Yeah, it's a curse, but it's a curse caused by the choices not to serve God that they made. And in rebelling against God, some terrible things happened. But, um, Robbie, be careful. If you're in a church, it's teaching are preaching generational curses. They simply don't exist. It's like me preaching against pink elephants. They don't exist. And yet you get a lot of people um, to, 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 to give money, to buy books. Um, um, there's just no such thing as gener- generational curses. And almost exclusively, uh, generational curses are taught by churches that have poor balance and bad theology. Let's go to Thomas on line one. Thomas, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Mr. Arbaugh. Once again, it's Hi, nice Thomas. to talk to you. Thank um, you. I, okay, thanks. Um, and I love the study because I do the live stream. Uh, and I, I like which, how we closed out on the First Corinthians. Uh, so the book of that, that was nice. Um, oh, thank you. I wanted to, uh, I, and I asked you about this before, Ron. It, it's about... Uh, the book of Enoch and and have you heard of a Doctor Heiser? He, he's supposed to be a biblical scholar or theologian or something like that. And have you? Um, I've heard the name, but no, I'm not familiar with him, Thomas. Okay, and now and he was. And it just disturbed me a little bit, and I just want to get a little bit of clarification from you on this. And he was saying that this book, because I was going to pick it up and buy it, but I began reading the front cover or the cover and the back and what, and then the contents of it. I really didn't like it because it got into demonology and all this stuff. I'm not going to get into mm-hmm. that. So, but but nevertheless, he was stating that some of the authors of the Bible even reference to Enoch, the Book of Enoch, and. I find that a little bit outrageous there. So can you talk about that? And I'll hang up and listen to that, Mr. Arbaugh. I can do it. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate that you're following along online as well. Um, the Book of Enoch, for people out there, is an extra-canonical book. Um, and, uh, Thomas, the, the book is referenced um, uh, in our New Testament. Um, uh, it, to be distinguished from the, the, the Enoch who ascended into heaven, uh, was taken to heaven without dying. Um, uh, it's just an extra-canonical book. Um, and the book has some value. There are some things that are true in there, and it's like the other books uh, that are that aren't included in our Bible, that are referenced in our Bible. Uh, it, it's not giving credibility whatsoever uh, to the book as being inspired by God. Uh, it's simply saying Paul, for example, quoted from poets, Cretan poets. Um, he's just saying that when they said that, that's a true statement. He's not saying that God had anything to do with with their writings. And the book of, of Enoch, like other extra-canonical books, um, has, has some historical value. Um, with you, I've read some of the other things, uh, other Gospels that are, are not part of our Gospel, and I find some of them interesting. Uh, the book of Enoch, I, 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 when I looked at it, it was just kind of a... Uh, an exercise in futility. It just didn't make any sense. So it's not an inspired part of our scripture. And yet there are still things that might have value in there. And I think for any Bible scholar, and if, if you're, uh, you, you said this Heiser is a, a biblical 
scholar. I've got uh, Michael S. Heiser. Thank you, Sam. Is an American Biblical Old Testament scholar and Christian author. His area of expertise is in is the nature of the spiritual realm of the Bible, namely the divine counsel and the hierarchy of the spiritual order. Um, you know, I, I don't know him, so I'm not going to, to make a judgment. But uh, just that description of him would, would put me, uh, just cast me as a cynic. There's a lot of, of uh, PhDs, a lot of people that claim to be biblical scholars who completely discount the Bible as the inerrant, infallible word of God. So, um, Thomas, if, if, the, if it didn't set well with you, um, that's probably the Holy Spirit giving you discernment and good for you on that. But uh, I always tell people here at Calvary Chapel, stick with the word. Stick with the word. And, um, you know, we get a lot of questions. We live in a Catholic culture here in San Antonio. I get a lot of questions about extra canonical books. And why did the, the we take out books from the Bible? We didn't. They were never part of the canon of Scripture, neither the Jewish canon or the New Testament that we understand. Uh, and I think sometimes it's better uh, just to leave them alone. Again, I have spent some time with the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Barnabas, uh, um, the Gospel according to Mary Magdalene, uh, just as a curiosity factor. But there's zero value at all, Thomas, in reading those books. They were not inspired by God, and they have no standing at all, relatively speaking, compared to the books that we know that were written by the finger of God, um, actually pushing the pens of men Uh, And we have them. So um, I've not done a deep dive into Enoch at all. And I just don't see any value of it. Thomas, thank you for the question. Thank you for following uh, what we're doing online. Here's an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a church friend who was recently saved, but she is still living in sin. I confronted my friend, and then in parentheses is the sister, about it. And she said, it takes time to completely change. How can I respond to her? Is she right? I try to explain that there's a difference from the sanctification process and being truly saved. How do we know if someone is truly saved? Anonymous, you don't know and I don't know, but only God does. Um, Sometimes your friend doesn't even know, in this case, your sister. Now, I think this is really important and you want to respond to her. Do it, first of all, in love. Understand that it's difficult. For example, and we have this happen all the time, people come into church, they give their lives to Jesus Christ, but they're living with somebody that they're not married to. They're involved sexually with people uh, in relationships. and, And it's very difficult for them just to sort of cut those strings immediately. Um, Here's what you need to tell her. You need to tell her that when you came to Jesus, you were saying, Jesus, I'm now yours. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, The old is gone, the new has come. And sanctification takes some time. We can change very quickly. I changed very quickly when I got saved. Other people change more slowly. But the one thing that demonstrates that we were sincere in coming to Christ is that we turn from sin. And we can no longer sin. Doesn't mean we won't slip up, but we've got to willfully, intentionally, purposely turn from sin. And what I tell people in this exact situation, I I say, look, if you're going to go right back to that which you were rescued from, then that's an indication that you really weren't serious about giving your heart to Jesus. I mean, everybody anonymous wants to go to heaven. But are they willing to count the cost of it? And sometimes the cost is saying goodbye to sinful relationships. So I don't like it when people say, well, you know, it takes time. It really doesn't. Yesterday I was a sinner. Today I'm running away from sin. That's what it means to come to Jesus. And make no mistake, we've got to come to him on his terms. We can come to him the way we are, but we can't stay the way we are. And I realize how difficult it is at times. But we've still got to encourage him and exhort them. God has more for you than this. Paula will tell people like this all the time. You just don't know your value to God. If you understood how valuable you are to God, you wouldn't be able to do this any longer. So encourage her, exhort her. Don't judge her at the same time. Be steady and saying, you got to leave sin. you got to leave sin. And keep praying for her no matter what. 
Thanks very much for that. This will be the last one we get to today. Um, this is from Anonymous for obvious reasons. Hi, Pastor. My wife is a completely emotional and hot-headed person. I believe she's been saved, but she tends to want to fight about everything. I take her to church. I pray with her and read with her. What else can I do as her husband? Thank you. Um, Anonymous, here's what you can do. You can continue to be patient with her and loving with her. But at the same time, when you're praying with her, praying for her and reading with her in the Word, then here's what you do. You say, the way you're behaving is not consistent with somebody who knows Jesus Christ. I'd want to be sure my wife was really saved. I would tell her, and Paula knows this is true. I would tell her, you say you're saved, but you don't act like you're saved. And I want you to be in heaven. So why do you still behave in a way that unbelievers behave? The fruit of the Spirit, Anonymous, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. And she's not demonstrating those things. And I think it's reasonable to assume that when we are with Christ, in Christ, when our hearts have been surrendered to him, that we ought to be demonstrating some of the fruits of the Spirit, at least. And here's what you say. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. So to be emotional in my head is a lack of self-control. And I would ask her, why do you think you're saved? We're not saved. And this works for the last question, too. We're not saved because we said a prayer. We're not saved because we walked an altar or because we got baptized. We're saved because we met Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, you change because he changes you. Thanks for the question. Keep the word open. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Remember our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. You've been listening to our program. We're grateful. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.